Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks again for the introduction, Dr. Bill. Welcome to the program. I don't know where you are listening to this. Maybe you're out and about getting ready for Christmas. It is, after all, the third weekend of Advent. But thanks for sharing some of the time with us. And special thanks to the Salem Media Group for producing and distributing the program. And all credit to Matt on the other side of the glass for producing. Okay, if you're looking for a fun gift to give a sports fan for Christmas, the book we're going to talk about today would be a good choice. My friend John Strigi is back on the show. He's the book's author, and this title is just out. It's entitled, In the Big Inning, kind of cute there, Where Faith Meets Sports, A Christian Sports Writer's Perspective. Now, John has authored seven other books, including Tiger, a biography of Tiger Woods, and then there's another um, best-selling book that he wrote called 18 Holes with Bing, Golf, Life, and Lessons from Dad, which he co-authored with Nathaniel Crosby, who is Bing's son. John is a lifelong, and well, not lifelong, long-time scribe for Golf Digest, where he still contributes from time to time, and he's a lifetime honorary member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. John, it is good to have you back on the show. Well, I, I appreciate it, Paul. It's always good to talk to you anyway. Well, it's uh, fun to have you so close to Christmas when many of us hear uh, the name Bing Crosby. I mean, it's just synonymous with Christmas, and your book wasn't about necessarily white Christmas. But tell me, um, you kind of have been around the Crosby family, maybe even close to Christmas. <laughs> yes. Um, I got to know Nathaniel, uh, who was a very good uh, golfer in his own right, uh, played professionally on the European Tour. Um, won the U.S. Amateur four years after his dad died, unfortunately. But I got to know him through golf, and and I actually came up with the idea to do a book with him on his on his dad and golf. And I, I remember this is probably seven eight years ago to start the research on it. I drove up to the Crosby Estate in Hillsboro, California, just outside San Francisco, a very high rent district. Um, so I met with Nathaniel there. I met Catherine Crosby. Nathaniel's brother was there with his kids, and his sister was there. I met the whole Crosby clan three days before Christmas, you know, up at up, up at their mansion. Yeah. It was quite a time. You almost wonder, do they play that song in a loop uh, <laughs> yeah, in should, the home? I should have asked. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bing was a good golfer. Yeah, very good golfer. He he played in a U.S. amateur and a British amateur, uh, and he loved it. He probably enjoyed it more than singing. So he played uh, right up till close to his death? Yeah, he was walking off a golf course in Spain uh, after he'd finished the last Christmas show he did, the one where um, he taped uh, The Little Drummer Boy with David Bowie. Oh, that's a famous clip. We yeah. see that all the time. And that was, he was over there doing that and then wanted a little rest and relaxation and playing some golf with friends in Spain and came off the 18th green and collapsed and died of a heart attack. I did not know that. What, yeah. That's interesting. So 
How about that? Okay, so he was an old man at that uh, point. He, I think he was seventy. I want to say seventy-four. Okay, that doesn't not seem that, too old anymore. No, not anymore. Yeah. Well, John, um, thank you for joining us. And this is what a what a great book you've written here. And I've, as I've shared with you off the air, um, you know there are a lot of books written about athletes and sports, and they tend to be, uh, to quote our mutual friend Jim Dobson, they tend to be thin soup. At times, uh, this book is not that. This book is a su- significant, substantial, well-written, well-researched book where you talk about the intersection of faith and sports. Um, you're a lifetime member of several associations, baseball and golf, longtime sports writer. What motivated you to write this book about sports and faith? Well, you know, you know I was raised in a Christian household, so I've been a Christian my whole life. And as I point out in the book, you know, I didn't want to seem like I'm lecturing people. I wasn't always a great Christian. You know, I went through those stages that, you know, a lot of people do in their teens and early 20s. But, uh, you know, covering sports all those years, you know, I was always attuned to Christian athletes. And I never anticipated writing a book on it until I basically semi-retired in 2020. And I'd had the idea for... I'd been thinking about it for a while. I think there, there could be a book here, but I wasn't sure I was going to do it until I, I knew Dusty Baker very well from when I was on the Dodgers beat for Orange County Register. And I hadn't talked to him in probably 30 years. I had an old phone number for him. I knew he was a Christian. So I called, uh, called or actually I texted him, you know, wondering if I could talk to you about your faith. He got right back to me. And he said he'd call me a week later. And and he was terrific talking about how prayer has influenced every major decision of his life, uh, including whether to accept the Houston Astros job because he knew it was going to be brutal. Uh, and then he won a World Series with him. But at, so after that conversation, you know, it it really piqued my interest in actually sitting down and doing this book. Yeah. Now in the book, you kind of lay out kind of the the trajectory of faith and sports. You know, years and years ago, probably. In our early, in our childhoods, it didn't seem to have that much interplay. I mean, you would have athletes who, of course, were probably off the field. They went to church and they lived their faith and all, but they didn't talk much about it. Uh, that's true. What happened? Like, what was was there a turning point? Was there something in culture that uh, triggered this outward public expression of faith uh, on the diamond, on the court, on the gridiron? And so forth. Yeah, I think social media played a huge part of it. Uh, and I get into some of that in the book, you know, how these athletes, these Christian athletes, you know, I called it soundbite witnessing. I mean, uh, and it could be in a tweet. And, you know, Steph Curry's been great at it. Russell Wilson. Um, there's several athletes are great at just, you know, getting in and getting out. You know, when Bryce Young won the Heisman Trophy, um, the Alabama quarterback, so they're having the ceremony. He's named the winner of the Heisman Trophy, and first thing he says, he thanks his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. took three seconds, but it was a great soundbite witnessing, Yeah, I call it. But I think social media has played a huge part of it. And it, everything's on television now, too. Mm-hmm. Every game is televised. Right, and and maybe of the there seems to be very few good things that have come about social media that would be one of them yes um yeah. okay so you know you talk about dusty baker a good guy's probably going to be a hall of famer yes you knew him as a 
as a player with the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Um, you liked him back then. One of the one of the finest guys I've ever met in covering sports for fifty years. I mean, just a world class human being. What distinguished him back as a player in that era? As a player, and, and as a as a good guy, you know, obviously a lot of good athletes. You encounter them every day in your career, but when you're a sports writer covering these guys, you have to deal with them in the locker room, in the dugout, on the plane. How? Uh, What's what made him stand out from the rest? He's just I think he was raised right. You know, he grew up as in a Baptist faith. He was raised as a Baptist. Um, I think he had a mother that his mother and father were divorced, but he was still close to both of them. And I think they raised him right. He's just a thoroughly decent guy. And, uh, you know, I made the point in the book that uh if if somebody doesn't like Dusty Baker, it says more about them than it does mm-hmm. Dusty Baker. <laughs> uh, and one thing that I recall, you could never go to, you know, when a team starts going bad, you know, a losing streak or they're not playing well, it's midseason. You always want that go-to player, very smart guy, to explain it. He would not ever answer those questions because he never wanted to go negative. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time he would refuse to to answer your questions politely but he goes no don't come to me with the negative stuff yeah you sort of um convinced me to not hate the astros as much as i was <laughs> because being a yankee fan and and with the astros accused of cheating of course that wasn't under dusty baker's right. watch but uh it you kind of brought me i was i was rooting for them this past season they came up a little short as i know you were rooting for him too but uh, is he going to retire? Uh, he did. He announced he, his retirement. From the game completely. Yeah. He, he has a winery, Baker Family Wines, up in Northern California, and he's got another business, so he's going to stay busy. But okay. He'll wind up in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you mentioned in your book that he said the job with the Astros was a gift from God. Yes, he, he, because, again, he did not – he knew it was going to be a, walking into, you know, a minefield. Um but I think he was the perfect guy, and others did too, the perfect guy to go into that situation because everybody in baseball respects him. Yeah. So they might not respect some of the players who cheated, but you know, you had to respect Dusty Baker. He brings a lot of credibility back yep. uh, to the game and to the team. I'm talking with John Strigi. I'm Paul Batura. John is the author of a new book uh, out uh, just this fall. It's entitled In the Big Inning. Where Faith Meets Sports, A Christian Sports Writer's Perspective. John, I love one of my favorite paragraphs in the book is where you kind of delineate or you kind of talk about all the spiritual references in the games. So let me just read this. You said, we have the New Orleans Saints, the Hail Mary, the Holy Roller, the Immaculate Reception, the Padres, the Los Angeles Angels, Tommy Lasorda's Big Dodger in the Sky, Amen Corner at Augusta National, the Church Pew Bunkers at Oakmont Country Club. I wasn't aware of that one. That was I did not know that one, but you would. God Bless America sung at Philadelphia Flyer home games. And then, of course, Notre Dame's Touchdown Jesus. That must have been a fun list to compile. Yeah, it was. You know, because a lot of people don't want Christianity and, and sports to intersect at all. And I'm going... It's everywhere in sports, and that's why I wrote that paragraph. It's kind of it's kind of refreshing, right? To in an, in an era where we see um, animosity directed towards Christians mm-hmm. and uh, sort of even believers vilified in a lot of different forums, 
here you can't hardly turn away and not run into a sports reference and, and a religious reference in sports. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I find it amusing. That, you know, as much as hard as people try to keep sport, you know, don't want sports and Christianity to intersect. It's it's there everywhere. And again, it goes now. It goes all the way to the players who have all these platforms now. Christian players to witness, even if it's just you know citing a. Or thanking your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then answering questions. Yeah, you've been you've been covering sports for decades now, and um, when you were covering them back in the day, when a player would uh, maybe make a reference, or you knew they were a person of faith, um, what type of uh, re- how, how was that received by the press corps? Was there a roll of the eye? Was it <laughs> yeah, what was? How would you qualify it? A collective eye roll for sure. And and I mentioned in the book I was guilty at times too when it was if it was a deadline right you're trying to get a quick quote get back to the press box to write and then you know the first thing he says you know is a Christian reference and now I need a quote to, so I can make the deadline so I was guilty of the occasional eye roll but it did, was a collective eye roll did for edi- sure did editors kind of discourage you from including that in your coverage. If they were, I mean, for someone like a Tebow or someone like a Dusty Baker, where it's so prominent and preeminent in their life, how do you leave it out when you're writing your story? You know, I, I don't think I ever did, um, but it wasn't that prevalent back then either. So, uh, but no, you know, I'd never got called out on it. Yeah. Told not to, but even though, even in sports though, it's, it's a lot like the rest of the newsrooms and newspapers. It, it leans left. Sure. And so I was kind of an outlier, a conservative, pro-life Christian. Hmm. There were a few of us, but, you know, we tended to, you know, not talk about it much just because we were so outnumbered. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever feel any type of uh, tension between you and others or did you kind of just manage that? No, only only when I and I didn't have to go into the office all that often. But when I did, I mean, it was overwhelmingly you know, uh, liberal. Sure. Again, even in sports. So, yeah. You know, it, when it's one against 10 you, or two against 10 other people, you just kind of, you don't want to enter into those conversations. Chaplains have been a part of professional sports for a yeah. long time. Yeah. Did you have much interaction with them as a writer? Uh, no. Um, I covered baseball six years full time, Dodgers three years, Angels three years. And um, they did have a baseball chapel. A couple hours before the games on Sunday, but I never attended those. I think I could have if if I wasn't going to church first. Yeah, yeah. I remember growing up. I we've talked about this before. I grew up in the town of Baldwin, and Bob Shepard, yeah, was the New York Yankee public address announcer. And on uh, home game uh, weekends, uh, he'd either be at the eight o'clock mass and then immediately leave for the stadium, or sometimes he would tell us he would attend mass at the stadium. And as a kid. That was always a bit curious to me. I thought there's mass inside Yankee Stadium, I and mean, what players go. And he would he wouldn't really talk about it, but I'm sure only a few probably attended. Uh, but it was there for the offering. But you know, I mentioned in the book uh, how baseball chapels started and involved the Yankees, uh, and it was Bobby Richardson and Tony Kubek called the Milkshake Twins, second baseman, shortstop, sure. Christians, and they'd find a church on the road every Sunday. And they would always invite Mickey Mantle. And occasionally Mantle would go along. And it was in Minnesota. And 
So uh, Bobby Richardson had arranged for a cab to be waiting for them with 10 minutes left in the service so they can get out of there before, you know, the congregation realizes Mickey Mantle is, is in church. Yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't work. And so they were late for batting practice. And that was, and I think it was Red Barber, who was a Christian, had the idea. I think he was involved in it. Um, maybe we should just have a, you know, Bible study at, in the clubhouse on Sundays to avoid these things. And that was the start of Baseball Chapel, mm. which is an official organization that uh, every team uses, minor leagues, um, probably some colleges, too. Yeah. You mentioned Mickey Mouth, kind mm-hmm. of a famous conversion towards the end of his life uh, where he kind of got a hold of his drinking issue, although, of course, it ultimately probably was what did him in. Right. Um, did you ever cross paths with him? Uh, I don't recall, no. Um even at old timers games, I mean, I remember being uh, Joe DiMaggio would come out, and but I don't remember ever crossing paths with Mantle. Okay, but, so you mentioned Bobby Richardson, yes, a good guy, and you got a chance to talk with him in writing this book. Yeah, um, so he's eighty-seven years old, might even be eighty-eight now, and and I couldn't find a phone number for him. But I found an address. So I sent him a letter, told him what I wanted to talk to him about. And you are an old school reporter to do that. <laughs> yes. That's good. And he got back to me about two weeks later. And, and it was a great, probably 40-minute conversation. Um, just how, you know, he'd been working on Mantle, you know, their 10 years probably played together. And just quietly working on him, you know, inviting him to church and, and, um, and, and, you know, I asked him and he'd said this before, but, you know, why'd you work so hard and bringing him to Christianity and faith? And he, which he did towards the end of Mantle's life. He says, I wanted to spend eternity in heaven with my friend. Mm. And I'm going, what a great sentiment for yeah. anybody. I mean, it's, you know, if you've got a best friend who's not a Christian, wouldn't you want to? to bring him to faith so you can spend eternity with him in heaven. I it's love a, that. Yeah. It's such a great, um, great point, John. And it's, it's convicting. I think for a lot of us who have friends who are not believers, we don't want to offend them. We don't want to turn them off. And yet what do we, what do we want more, right? Do we want to see them, uh, after we die or do we never want to see him again? And I think it's a, a, a worthy risk. Yeah, I do too. I think that's, you know, I had an appreciation for Bobby Richardson anyway, but that just solidified it. It was, it was a great conversation. Did you talk much with him? Of course, he's Dr. Bobby Richardson. He left the game, didn't he, to kind of go into medicine? You know, I, I don't know that. Okay. Um, if I, I, maybe I'm, I may be confusing things, but I thought he left the game kind of early, and I thought he became a heart doctor. I could be wrong on that. But. No, I don't think he did. No? Uh, okay. Okay. Well, uh, what a great addition to your book to get to talk with him. And that's what's so great about this book. This is obviously not just someone who's rehashing what other people have written, but you have first, you know, primary sources here. You're actually talking with athletes. Okay, let's talk about Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow's sort of, I mean, he's still in the news from time to time doing great work. Your your essay, uh, your chapter where you talked about it brought back memories for me uh, living here in Colorado um, he kind of, uh, you know, obviously splashed onto the scene as a Heisman Trophy winner. But um, the night he decided to put John three sixteen 
on his eye black. Yeah. What kind of impact did that have in social media? It was it was unbelievable. It, um, 94 million people Googled John 316. And when Tebow was asked about that, he says, how could 94 million people not know about John 316? <laughs> he was astonished that yeah. they had to Google it. But what an impact. And, and again, that's took nothing. It just put in John 316 on his eye black for the national championship game. 94 million people. I mean, some of those people had to come to faith from that, I would guess. Once more, as you mentioned, the power of the positive power of social media. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Tim has been one of those athletes who has, it seems to me, has done everything right. Yeah. I mean, you can't fault him for anything. I mean, no misstatements. No, I mean, he's just, he's been great for Christianity and, you know, and he's, Still prominent, you know, on college football game day. and Sure. And, you know, I've never met him, but I love the guy. You mentioned in, in your book, you mentioned the Super Bowl commercial that he filmed uh, with Focus on the Family, or my organization. And, uh, you know, that was an extraordinary season for us. Uh, you know, the idea was hatched and we reached out to him. And then when he agreed to do it, uh, you know, we didn't give, we didn't release it to the press ahead of time. We just simply talked about the fact that Tim Tebow would be starring in a commercial with his mom and press immediately got the impression that it was an anti-abortion ad and they just went bananas. They I, did. Mean, I mean, it was like, uh, you'd think we were, uh, you know, doing something illegal given the amount of press we received, but, uh, it, it, it was quite the hit of a commercial. It was. And, and, to his credit, Tebow never backed down from it. I mean, he, you know, he didn't shy away from it because, you know, his own story, you know, the doctors thought his mom should abort him because I forget how the, you know, what the complication was. And she said, no, I'm not going to abort him. Um, so, I mean, that's part of his story. And, and yeah. I love the fact that he didn't back away from all that criticism after that commercial aired. No, he's been he's been a stalwart, and uh, we actually hosted him just a few weeks ago at an event in California. It was with some friends of the ministry, and uh, during that that Super Bowl commercial, uh, there was a woman who reached out to us who was pregnant at the time. Her name was Susan. Uh, we kind of nicknamed her within the organization Super Bowl Susan, and she was carrying a baby. She was planning to abort that child, but she saw the ad and she said, "I, I can't go through with it," and so she gave birth to baby Avita, and uh, that baby is now 13 years old. <laughs> I love that and story. So John, so we invited Tim and, and his mom and Susan and Evita, and they surprised one another. Tim didn't know it was coming, and they got a chance to meet for the first time, and you can imagine the tears were flowing. Oh, I can only imagine. That uh, is fantastic. Yeah, it's a great a great pro-life story, and, and once more, someone who was you know willing to, to be public about their faith, to be public about their beliefs. And that's what this book highlights, of course, are people who are bold, people who are not afraid right. to back away. And it empowers other people, I think. You know, and if Tebow's so comfortable with it, other Christian athletes, you know, follow suit. You quote, um, is it Dr. Billy Graham? When the spine, when, when one yeah. man, mm-hmm. you know the quote? Yeah, I do, about stiffening i don't remember the quote exactly but yeah yeah. i think it's when one man takes a stand the spines of others are stiffened yeah Mm -hmm. and uh, that is what as believers i think we're called to do and and called uh, to be um john uh, we're we're 
going to hold you on here for the second half of the show, but just uh, if people want to get the book, where's the best place for them to get the book in time for Christmas? Uh, it's available on uh, you know Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Books a Million, you know wherever you do your book shopping online. Yeah, the book is entitled "In the Big Inning." Where Faith Meets Sports, a Christian sports writer's perspective. The uh, John Strigge, it's S-T-R-E-G-E. And it's just a great book. I, I could see this fitting into a stocking very easily. Um, it's, it's just a fantastic book for, especially if there's a Christian sports fan in your family. Um, it's it's going to be an encouraging read. It's going to be an inspirational read. Um, John, when we come back, I'd love to talk with you um, about more in the book. I want, I want you to answer the question, does God care who wins? Uh, does God root for particular teams? And then I'd love to talk about some other people, names like James Naismith and um, Eric Little and all these stalwarts of the faith. So hang on, and when we come back, more from John Strigge, author of In the Beginning. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Um, we're talking with John Strigi. He is the author of a new book, In the Big Inning, Where Faith Meets Sports, a Christian sports writer's perspective. And John is author of numerous books, including the first biography on Tiger Woods, a book about Bing Crosby and golf, um, a wonderful book I'd love to talk with you about too, John, uh, about your daughter, Hannah. Yeah. And uh, let's, be, let's, let's take a break from sports for a minute because you and I um, – this is where our hearts really lie, and that is adoption. And tell us, who is Hannah? Well, Hannah is our 24-year-old daughter now, recently graduated with her master's degree from Baylor in social work, wants to get into adoptions. But it all started, we went through infertility issues, my wife and I, and she had pre premature ovarian uh, failure. And... Needless to say, she was devastated, as was I. And when she learned that news, the first thing she asked the doctors, can we adopt embryos, frozen embryos? Mm. Because they'd started to come into the news. There's all these frozen embryos, that um, infertility treatments, and families already had enough kids, and they've got these remaining frozen embryos. And we ended up adopting Hannah, as a frozen embryo, the first of its kind, and it sort of launched a movement. Wow. I think this was God's hand at work, not ours. Um, all we wanted to do is have a kid, you know, and, yeah. and it became so much bigger than that. Uh, with the help, you know, uh, back then, Dr. Dobson at Focus on the Family was a, a big advocate for us, became a friend. But Yeah, you had the question, I mean, is this an ethical thing to do? Yes, and, and he had to search answer for answers himself, and mm -hmm. he came back. He says, yeah, if, if these families aren't going to go back for them, they should be adopted. And, I mean, and we've been fans of Focus on the Family ever since, needless to say. Well, we appreciate that. I mean, how, how many is there a number out there of how many embryos are now frozen? It, it's probably in the millions. You know, and the sad thing is, and we've tried to emphasize, you know, we're trying to solve a problem. But I think they just keep creating more of a problem because, you know, doc, uh, these some of these fertility doctors, they get the patients, they'll do anything to have a child. And if it means creating 30 embryos and and you have twins and now you got 
25 remaining embryos that are in frozen storage, it's not a good thing. Yeah, they want, I mean, the, the ethical side of this is they're creating all these embryos because they want to be able to select the best embryos mm-hmm. based on their determination. And, and uh, by God's grace, um, Hannah will turn 25 uh, July, uh, December, December 31st, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and you guys haven't just been uh, even innocent bystanders in all this. You have been advocates. You've gone to the White House and you've been championing uh, snowflake, as they call them, legislation to protect and to preserve and to encourage others to do the same. Yeah, very briefly, they were, uh, there was a movement back in late 90s and early 2000s to use frozen embryos uh, in research, which um, stem cell, re- embryonic stem cell research, which would kill the embryos. And so we'd been to the White House. Marlene testified before Congress. But the update on that is, even though Obama overturned George Bush's veto on using federal funds, nothing ever came of it. um, They've basically abandoned trying to use frozen embryos for research purposes. It wasn't going Hmm. stem cell thing wasn't working out in yeah, that the, regard. The real hope and the real promise is an adult stem cell. Correct. And that's where the focus is now. Yeah. So basically, we were right. We were right anyway, but um, this this just uh, sort of proved it. Yeah, it's always reassuring when yeah. when uh, decisions are affirmed. And as, as many pastors have said, just hold on. Um, science will eventually catch up to our faith. Right. You yeah, know? I like that, yeah. So Hannah is a fantastic young woman, uh, but I'm sad to say I don't think she shares our love of sports. Uh, no, she doesn't, <laughs> which is okay. You know, when you're immersed in it as a sports writer, it's nice to come home and not have to talk about it, or I can just go into my office and watch a game with it. So she wouldn't even watch a game with you? No, no. <laughs> and again, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Okay. Although I, she did want to go to, when she's seven, maybe 15, Wanted to go to a baseball game because she discovered that some of the players were cute. So <laughs> we had to take her to a game. Well, that's fun. And I'm I'm sure you were rather relieved that she stayed away from some of them. <laughs> yes. Knowing Given what you know. reputations, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to your book, In the Beginning. Um, specifically, I'd love for you to tell the story. Many people may not know about who James Naismith was. <laughs> well, J- James Nais- Naismith was a Canadian. Uh, and a Christian intended to go into preaching and being, becoming a pa- uh, pastor. Um, but he eventually wound up in, in the Boston area uh, in Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts. I forget the name of the college back then, but he was, uh, there's two things. He, he played for Amos Alonzo Stag, Stag Stubby Christians, the football team that he played for. But, yeah. He was assigned to find a game for the winter time because the winters were brutal. An indoor game where a bunch of people could play, and he came up. He invented basketball, um, nailing peach baskets to each end of the floor in, gy- in the gymnasium, ten feet off the ground. Just happened to be that's where the railing was, where he could nail them. It was hmm. ten feet, and it was a while before they figured out they'd have to station a guy at the at the basket to retrieve the ball out of the peach basket. And it was a while before they figured out, why don't we just cut the bottom of the peach basket? Genius. Yeah. Yes. And it would keep it going. But I, yeah. I didn't know that the 10 foot mark was just kind of um, arbitrary. Random, yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. And, but he was a great Christian, and, and he invented the game, you know, basically to help spread the word about Christianity and bring to bring others to Christ. Yeah, the, the his motto that you you note in the book was to win men for the master. Yes, yeah. What a great what a great uh, motive to start a game that became and has arguably been one of the most popular spectator sports in America. He wouldn't recognize it today, probably if, yeah. he, if he came back. Not to mention, probably the Christian aspect is not what it, he intended. Yeah, you never covered basketball in, as a profession. No, you know, a few games here and there. And yeah. That was it. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's talk about another day, kind of a, a, a day that many of us remember even. October 15th, 1988, the Catholics versus the convicts. Yes. And I actually covered that game. And where were you and what do you remember? Uh, well, it was Notre Dame Stadium. I was in the press box, but um, it was, I don't know how to say, I don't know if they were number one ranked and versus number two ranked, but it was right close to that. And the Catholics were, of course, the Notre Dame football team and the convicts. Miami had a bunch of players suspended for, you know, breaking laws. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them probably went to jail. And somebody came up with the idea, let's put this on a T-shirt, the convicts versus the Catholics. I think so this was like some rogue yeah, student who decided yes, to do it, two right? Two students, yeah. Okay. And sold a zillion of them. But, um, and it, I mean, it was a great game. First of all, any game you're covering at Notre Dame Stadium is awesome. I don't know if you've ever been there. Oh, I've been there. It's a special place. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And But the Catholics won. They prevailed. Uh, it was like a two-point victory. Came right down to the end. We've had uh, 31-30, right? One-point game, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, we've had Lou Holtz on the program before. You uh, got to know him over the years. What are your impressions of him? I wouldn't say I knew him well, but I would go in early. I covered a couple Notre Dame games, and you'd meet with the coach like on Wednesday. Not one-on-one, -on -one, but he'd do a thing with all the writers. And, and I mean, he was great. You know, there was one time they were playing – you know, Rice the next week. Rice was like 0-7 or something. So oh, they're going to be a tough, you know, tough challenge. And, you know, Notre Dame's ranked number one. What do you mean a tough? Yeah. <laughs> but that's just the way he was. He was so fun. I love as you figured, as you found out when you guys interviewed him. Oh, he's a fantastic guy and, and witty and funny. And yep. I loved when you told me that story about him exaggerating things because <laughs> – I worked with a guy at Newsday, which is a newspaper back right. in New York, who couldn't stand Lou Holtz. And he said he overstates everything. He always he, he just he talks about how they're going to lose every week. It's all a head game. He just drives me crazy. You know, he's one of these Notre Dame haters, of which there are many. Yes, and I kind of I kind of like Notre Dame. Um, okay, um, another. I'm going to throw some names at you okay. here in your book, uh, Ralph Bronca. Oh, he, he, what a wonderful guy! But and a Christian. Um, he's the pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers that gave up the shot heard around the world, the home run. 1951. Yep. That a lot in a playoff that allowed the New York Giants to advance to, or the New York, New York Giants. Giants to advance to the World Series, right. beating the Yankees. And I mean, Branca was a, a Christian, and you know, you'd think he'd be haunted by this the rest of your life, and he wasn't because he had his faith and. You know, he was able to, to handle it. And I ended up getting to know him a little bit um, when I was covering the Dodgers. They'd bring him in. You know, they brought a lot of their past players into, um, I said New York Giants, but I meant 
It was it was he that, was with he was Brooklyn he, he Dodgers. He was with the Brooklyn Dodgers. They, they played the, the Giants. Giants, Giants went, went on to yeah. the World Series that but year. But so they yeah. bring in a lot of Dodgers would bring in a lot of their past players to help out during spring training in Vero Beach. And we always played a media game, the media against Dodgers staff. And it would have to be coaches, uh, scouts would play for the Dodgers staff team. We needed a pitcher. I was catching. We needed a pitcher. And Ralph Branca volunteered to, to pitch for the media team. So ah. I caught nine innings from him. Wow. Okay. Well, that I did not know that. And I was 25 at the time, hadn't caught since high school. So that's seven years later. I could hardly walk after <laughs> Does does a professional athlete who's obviously a lot older, can you still see flares of their greatness? Uh, I wouldn't yeah. say that because he was, you know, he's not throwing very hard. Okay, you, you could tell the comfort level was there for sure. Yeah, but he was just such a nice guy. I mean, and it, that was one of my great memories from spring training. You have to think that players who kind of have that bummer of a birthmark to have been the player who gave up the home run or. Bill Buckner, who the ball goes through his legs. I mean, some of those people, it sticks with them. They're haunted by They're it. haunted by it. Yeah. And yet believers, I would think, can maybe get over it a yes. little easier. And, and can you imagine this is the cauldron of, you know, New York City. This wasn't, you know, Kansas City. Yeah. Um, this is New York City where, you know, you're expected to win and perform. And, you know, I'm sure he got pilloried, but he... he handled it just so gracefully the rest of his life i also wonder if if fans back then were maybe a little bit more measured a little bit more sane than some are today i mean for some people this is a real you know and and you don't really get into that much in the book today but i'm curious for your impressions as a writer um how you have throughout the course of your career how have you seen fans react has has the fan uh, mania changed in the decades that you covered sports where it's become almost too much. Yeah, there's no question it's changed. And again, social media is a big part of that. Everybody's an expert and, you know, you throw out an opinion on Twitter and, you know, immediately there'll be 10 people, you know, arguing with you. Yeah. Um, so it's changed in that regard. And plus, you know, again, every major league NFL College major college football game is televised somewhere, so every game is on television and and every sport you know and these sports fanatics um it, it's changed dramatically um not necessarily for the better, but you know we all have opinions yeah I'm talking with um John Strigge. he's the author of a new book in the big inning where faith meets sports a Christian sports writer's perspective I'm Paul Batura, you're listening. To what a life lessons from legends. Lots of legends in this book. Another one is uh, Oral Hershiser. And at Focus on the Family, we did a bunch with Oral back in his Dodger days, probably post right as he was wrapping up his time with the Dodgers. You crossed paths with him a lot. Yeah. Tell us about your impressions of him. Just, you know, again, another very solid Christian who, you know, as I mentioned in the book in the 1988 World Series, he was the World Series MVP, but in the second game he pitched, he was seen on the bench singing to himself, and he didn't want to tell anybody what it was. He was on the Johnny Carson show after the Dodgers won the series, and, and uh, Carson got it out of him. He was singing the doxology hmm. to himself. Uh, a very good guy to deal with. 
and a solid Christian. Yeah. You, you mention in the book that players who have a faith tend to have a ballast about them, uh, a, a little bit more of a, uh, you know, not too high, not too low. Right. Um, I'm sure, you know, could you almost tell uh, at first glance who the Christians were and who the non-Christians were? That's a were? great question. I, I hadn't thought of that before until you just bring it up. But, yeah, I think they're, you know, because their highs and lows are tempered by their faith. I mean, I think that's a great observation. I wish I had made it in my book. <laughs> well, I, I kind of picked up on it. As you talk about, because obviously you're featuring some of these great players and you're lauding them. I mean, you're not lionizing them as someone, um, you know, they don't deserve to be, um, you know, treated any differently than anyone else. But, you know, I think one of the reasons I do this show is because I think you and I share uh, an appreciation for talent for and for people who are just good people. Right. And there's so much negative news out there. There's so much negative, you know. The, you know, it's it's almost like if you want to get on the headlines, in the headlines, you have to do something bad. Right. And, and here, one of the great guys that you mentioned in the book is Vince Scully. Oh, man. One of the best guys any of us have you know, has ever been privileged to know. How did, you, what, tell, us, tell us about the first time you met him. Well, I started on the Dodger beat in mid-season 1978. And for the first couple of years, we still had an advertising trade app with the team, several newspapers in Southern California did, which means they'd pick up your travel. We'd give them advertising in exchange. So, but we're traveling on the team plane, you know, it's uh, wherever they're going, we're going mm-hmm. with them, you know, the nice team way to buses. Go, right? And so you get to know everybody, you know, mm-hmm. Scully was just one of the nicest guys in the history of sports. Very easy to get to know. We love his, I mean, as a, as a listener, I mean, I, I, you had the privilege of listening to him in California. I only had listened to him on the game of the week right. uh, on NBC when I was a kid, but that storytelling ability, I mean, he just, he had a way of framing things in a gentle and yet a very colorful way. And, and it's, it was remarkable because he would weave those stories in as he's calling the games on the radio and never had to carry it over to the next, you know, they make the third out. Never had to carry it over. He was somehow, his timing was impeccable to get that story told before the yeah. third out of an inning. He was just, he was so good. What would, would there be anything that we would, would surprise us about him? Uh, nothing. I mean, you, his Christian faith was solid. Uh, you know, I talked to Ross Porter, who was the other Dodger broadcaster 28 years alongside him. Another great guy. Uh, can you imagine, you know, your second fiddle to the goat, the greatest mm. of all time? Yeah. But I talked to him about it and he says he never saw Vin Scully not once in 28 years be rude to anybody, mm. which is saying something because he was always getting approached, you know, even if he's in a hurry, you know, for autographs or yeah. photos. He never missed mass. He was raised a Catholic, never missed mass, he said, and the whole time he knew him either go on Saturday night or Sunday morning, even on the road. Yeah. It's one of those guys, you know, that Paul Harvey used to say, someone will take his job, but nobody will take his place. Yes, I like that. I don't know who, uh, no. you know, is on that level today. I mean, not to criticize any of the, the the folks we listen to. There's some good announcers out there, but he was sort of cut from a cloth that doesn't seem available anymore. Right. And, you know, and he also went, so he splits time with Ross Porter. He 
Vin probably does first three innings, Porter the next three, and then Vin would close it out. He never listened to his partners because he didn't want it to influence anything he said. So he'd leave the radio booth until it was time for him to come back. And he's a total professional, but one of the, one of the world's greatest guys. Wow. One thing you didn't mention in your book that I just saw recently, I thought I want to ask you about this, is someone has compared um, arenas, sports facilities, whether it's stadiums or or indoor arenas, to the new cathedrals of our day. Right. And, you know, the idea, kind of what we were alluding to, that people take sports extremely seriously now, and they've almost allowed sports to replace their love of um the Lord and, and even their, their eye on God. Um, how do you react to that? Uh, you know, all these games now on Sundays, you know, it probably makes it tougher for people to go to church. Um, not tougher. It's a decision you make. Yeah. Um, the way, the way the game has evolved, even with, you know, I remember when new Christmas Eve used to be a dark day in sports. Right. Nothing on. I mean, like, that was the one night that, but now there's really no get, no day of the year, Christmas Eve, Christmas no, Day. I mean, Christmas Day on, uh, you know, the NBA has become a big thing. Yeah. Great ratings and, and yeah. the, the arenas are sold out. And, um, the churches are empty, but the stands un- are full. Unfortunately. And I, I point some of that out in the book that church attendance is in decline anyway, across the board everywhere. And it, it's, very sad, but you know, it's a fact of life. <clears throat> you're a parent and you're listening and you want your kids to find heroes. Um, this is a good book to look at. Is there anyone who, who among the modern day players do you look to, whether it's the professional golf tour, men's or women's or professional, other professional sports that parents can gear, you know, direct their kids. This is a good, this is someone to emulate. Who do you, who do you point to? Well, like in professional golf, Scotty Scheffler, relatively new, but one of the two or three best players in the world now, just unabashed Christian, you know, and doesn't force it on anybody, but he'll, if you're talking to him, it'll just come out as Mm -hmm. naturally as possible. Just, I mean, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, and he talked about it the year he won the Masters. He was leading going into the final round on Sunday, which for the leader tees off late. And he says he was crying with his wife. He goes, I'm not up for this. I don't know how to handle it. And she says, who are you to decide that? Mm-hmm. You know, you leave it to God and whatever happens, happens. And I was, and I, I read that. I was, it kind of was, um, I kind of was amazed by it because you think, I think these guys are the pillar of confidence. Yeah, no. And he yet just, here he is being vulnerable, sharing that. Yes, and talking about how his wife reminded him God's in charge and, you know, whatever happens, happens. You'll use it for the glory of God. Mm. And it, and he said it on ESPN post-round interview. So it's seen by, you know, after he'd won, it was seen by a lot of people. Yeah. And it was total natural. I mean, he was comfortable saying it and. Uh, one of my favorite athletes now. I've never actually met him, but... Okay, and you cover a lot of the LPGA. Yeah, there's a lot of Christians on the LPGA, and, and I point out in the book that the, the great thing, the old Dinosaur tournament, it doesn't exist anymore. It moved to Houston under a different name, but that was one of their big major championships, and it would often fall the final round on Easter Sunday. They'd have a 
Easter sunrise service in the 18th green at the golf course. And wow. A lot of the LPGA players would come out for it. One of the most impressive things, though, and it's unrelated to golf and, and it's college women's basketball, was the uh, – no, college softball, the Oklahoma softball team. Mm-hmm. And they're, they'd won like 61 straight games. We're going into the three-game – College World Series, and before so they're being, they had three people being interviewed. Had no idea what the question was going to be. The question was from an ESPN reporter. I mean, what kind of joy do you derive from this with all this pressure to continue the winning streak and win another national championship? And each of the three players, I mean, this wasn't staged. They weren't ready for this question. Said, well, our joy, each one said in a different way, our joy comes from above, from the Lord. Mm. What we do here isn't, you know, doesn't give us the joy. Our joy is depending on a, dependent on our Christianity and our faith and our love of Jesus. All three of them said wow. this. And yeah. it was, it kind of went viral too. I, I loved it. Yeah. What an encouraging place to land. Cause yes. There's a lot of us who sort of lament where culture is, but yet there are diamonds in the rough. There are. No pun intended when talking about golf. But, John, you've done a great job pulling this out, uh, encouraging people to look towards this intersection of faith and sports is a good thing. And uh, you did a wonderful job. John's book is In the Beginning, Where Faith Meets Sports, a Christian sports writer's perspective. John, thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to you and your beautiful family. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life.